Good morning. Our reading today for the teaching is from 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're just joining us, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to some of the previous podcasts as we study this uh, important book on uh, the life of the church, what it means to be the household of God. Today's uh, passage deals with the office of uh, overseer or, uh, or elder, as we'll look at later. Let's read. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. You pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that you have established your church and built on this foundation of human beings, uh, an eternal heritage for yourself, an eternal dwelling place, not simply made of uh, bricks and mortar, but of living, uh, living people, your creation, whom you delight in. Will you help us, Lord, to see and live into that as we look at your word this morning and how you've uh, established your church and organized it. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a friend was visiting our church and took an Uber to get here. And as they were driving up, they pulled up to another church nearby, and the Uber driver said, you wanted to come to church, here's the church. And the friend said, no, I wanted to go to this church, not just any church. Similar thing happened to uh, me and my dad when we were visiting Scotland and uh, asked the hotel receptionist to tell us how to get to a particular church. They looked it up in the phone directory. We thought that they must be familiar with this well-known church. And sure enough, they sent us to another church, any church. What's the difference, the Uber driver says. What's the difference, the hotel receptionist may say. One of the most significant differences in churches has to do with how that church is governed or overseen. The role of the overseer, as Paul talks about in this passage to Timothy, has been interpreted in many different ways in many different places throughout history and in many different churches. Another situation happened at our other uh, meeting place here in the neighborhood when a well-intentioned neighbor walked by 
and said, what kind of church are you? And somebody in the crowd said, we're a Presbyterian church. And she said, well, isn't that the same type of church that's across the street? Why do we need more than one? Most people in our culture today, and I suspect that even some of us here today don't know what the word Presbyterian means or Episcopal or some of the other names for church uh, structures. They assume they have more to do with the doctrinal statements or positions of churches than they do with the overseeing of the church. But those phrases, Presbyterian and Episcopal, both refer to elder and overseer, respectively. In fact, much of the church division, as we understand them just by names of denominations, have to do more with the governance of the church than the particular theology of the church. And while I'm good friends with the pastor of the church, the Presbyterian church up the street, the Presbyterian church in the USA, which they are part of, and the Presbyterian church America that we're a part of, have very different theologies in some very significant areas. But still, in some ways, we're similar in that we are both governed by elders. In the Episcopal form of government, the church is governed primarily by overseers, or they translate this as bishops. So I titled the sermon somewhat creatively today. Let me make sure I get it in the right order. Elder, Shepherd, Bishop, Priest. Which I would like to propose, at least the first three of those are essentially synonymous terms in today's context and to, to a large degree, perhaps not the third one so much. And also the term overseer that Paul introduces here is synonymous with the term elder. The translation that you get in, say, the King James Version that translates that as a bishop doesn't come until some years after the writing of the New Testament when the office of the bishop overseeing the church, episcopos, or in the Catholic Church, the pope, along with other bishops overseeing various regions, doesn't really arise until at least the second century, quite a while after this initial church. But what's happening here in in the city of Ephesus, and what is still true, I believe, today, and is the best interpretation and application of this passage, is that God has given particular elders to watch over the church. Those elders are equal in stature, though some have different roles and responsibilities in the church. Some have particular gifts of administration, while others have particular gifts of teaching. But together, collectively, those elders meet and govern the church and play a very important role in how that church functions. In more recent developments of church, more autonomous churches, other churches have called themselves apostolic churches. And that generally refers to one person being identified as sort of an apostle who has a lot of authority and a lot of say in those churches. So while a lot of churches that are non-denominational do not identify themselves as apostolic churches, they follow that form of government where one person is basically governing the whole church. He has the say, or in some cases, she has the say. How that church is governed and who gets the say has a huge impact on the health and vitality of the church and also, I would suggest, on the biblical fidelity of the church. 
Not that one structure automatically is going to make a church more faithful or less faithful, but in the structure where a group of elders, a pair with, with equal standing and equal vote, gather together to understand God's word and to apply God's word and to decide on things, not just one person, nor one person over a lot of other people, has an opportunity for justice to be done. For the Bible to be elevated, for Jesus to be seen as the one who oversees all of his church and not the bishop or the pope or some charismatic figure in front of the congregation who preaches every week. It's an important passage in Scripture and many people have read it in different ways. I would suggest that the term overseer here, which you see, is synonymous with elder. And elder comes up later in the, uh, in the book of First Timothy, where Timothy talks about some elders being particularly called to teach, while other elders are to, remain, are to be uh, faithful in their work in, in various places. And we'll look at what that work uh, looks like. Regardless of how you interpret it in terms of the church structure, one thing that all Christians can agree on is that this role of an overseer, the role of those who govern the church, is an essential role to the church. So it's vital that we understand what God has said about it in his word. And who are the people who are called to fill that role? And how are those people selected? I'm not familiar with all the selection processes in many churches, but the more hierarchical a church is, the more that those in authority are selecting those who are under them in authority and placing them into positions of power and influence. In a Presbyterian structure, the people who choose the elders are ultimately the congregation itself. And this will be important for us as a church, and part of the reason that we're looking at this this book right now in the life of the church is that we are moving toward electing elders in our church. The congregation nominates men to serve as elders and then elects those men to serve as elders, but other elders enter into the process in the middle of that and instruct and teach people about the office of elder and also examine those men to see if they're qualified for the office of elder. And one of the key passages we look at for qualifications of elder is this passage right here. This passage that talks not so much about their gifting in various areas, not so much as the tasks that they're called to do, but far more so about the character that they maintain. The content of the character, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, is an essential thing in God's economy. And when Paul lists out the qualifications of an elder, he doesn't go first to who's the most charismatic speaker, who's the most able to make money in a culture, who are the most influential people in society. Instead, he warns that some of the time those very things can make somebody unqualified for the office of elder because they vie for a person's allegiance and confuse a person's priorities. 
It's a humbling thing. It should be a humbling thing for all of us to come to this passage and recognize that any of us who are called to be elders are first under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is our king and overseeing shepherd, our elder, the true elder. And also that we're called into a mutual relationship of accountability with other elders. And so I stand here as a pastor, as an elder who is accountable to other elders in our presbytery, to other elders who serve on the uh, elder board at uh, New Life in Escondido. No one rises to the point of not being accountable to another person in this economy that God has established. And if that is the case... Steps need to be taken to help bring people into mutual accountability in Jesus' church. Eldering is a dangerous role. It is a role that sometimes feels like you are the quarterback from the football team and everybody else is the armchair quarterback critiquing your performance on Sunday. Case in point, yesterday's sermon that was preached as part of the royal wedding has already had all kinds of criticism, at least on my Facebook feed, and I know I have a lot of preacher friends, from all kinds of armchair quarterbacks. I'm not going to talk about his role. But the office of elder is an important office that many people shy away from. It's significant that Paul says if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task as if to push people toward this because it is so easy to look at it and say, I'm not signing up for that. And it's not just the pastor. It's other elders who are helping to oversee the church. There are all kinds of criticisms that can come on a pastor and the elders of the church. Leaders put themselves in a vulnerable position, but leaders are necessary to move an organization, to move a group of people, to move things forward. We like to take hikes with our kids. And if somebody's not pressing the kids forward, we will sit and look at the same pile of pine cones forever. And the kids don't always want to move past that pile of pine cones. But it's a noble task to follow Jesus as our great leader and also realize the task that he's calling us to involves us stepping into leadership roles under his authority. To move people forward, to build up the church, to grow the household of God and to equip other people to be leaders in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that all men are called to be elders. It doesn't mean that all people are called to be elders. If you weren't with us last week, I need to point you back to the sermon last week where we talked about men and women in Jesus' church and how it is not a matter of worth or even necessarily of capability in particular roles that make a man, the office of elder, Uh, to be held by men in Jesus' church. It is not uh, a matter of one being more, um, more important in God's economy any more than the husband-wife relationship 
is not a matter of importance, but there is an important responsibility and role of the husband being the one who's accountable first and foremost to God for his family. Doesn't mean that the wife doesn't have her own accountability. Doesn't mean that the wife would never be at fault in that. And in fact, oftentimes in marriage problems, both husband and wife are at fault. Similarly, in Jesus' church, it doesn't mean that the elder is always right or the board of elders is always right or that the congregation or those that they oversee are always wrong. But in God's economy, he's established these elders to be the first line of accountability. Not to be overbearing to the congregation, not to be overbearing to the wife, but as Christ loved the church, Paul says in his letter to the church in Ephesus, and laid down his life for her, so should husbands lay down their life for their wives. To lead in a servant leadership type of role, that is also the role that elders in Jesus' church are called to follow and emulate. Servant leadership is the only type of leadership that is presented in the scriptures. It's the only type of leadership that's presented in the scriptures. Now, sometimes servant leaders are tasked to do difficult things and to name problems and issues that need to be addressed, even in harsh ways. The prophets are a perfect example of this, where the prophets say tough things to the people of Israel that needed to be said as warnings. The people of Israel, corresponding to us, Jesus' church today, what is called the Israel of God. Again, Paul calls that the Israel of God. The church, the congregation, is the Israel of God. We as individuals, as a church body, we still need to hear difficult things. We need to be told we are wrong some of the time. Elders are called to the important role of judging when disputes arise in the church. Elders sit in a seat of judgment. And in fact, in the Presbyterian church, we call the board of elders, the presbytery, the general assembly, these bodies courts because they are deciding bodies. In marriages, when disputes arise, the place to bring those disputes first, first is to other people in the church. But the first step, the first court is not a court of law. It's not to find a lawyer and lawyer up. It's to come to the session of the church and ask for help. And a wise session involves other women who are wise in the congregation alongside of them and counsels and shepherds the people in that marriage with the goal of reconciliation with the goal of identifying problems and naming issues and exercising repentance and forgiveness in working toward mutual accountability, mutual love, a reestablishing of the relationship. In a similar way, the elders of the church are called to make difficult decisions on doctrine. When false teachings arise in the church or sometimes teachings that sound really good 
and even have seemingly biblical evidence for them. It's these courts of the church, the elders of the church who are, st- who are called to stand guard against false teachings. One of the most powerful tools against false teachings is looking back over church history. And so elders should be knowledgeable about doctrine and about church history and how that doctrine has been interpreted because all of us know we aren't going down this path for the first time. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. We look to those who have gone before us because they have faced other similar issues, gone down other similar paths, and we can find out that that path sometimes leads to a path of great harm and destruction, where churches split, where something that sound, sounds appealing Winsome to the culture around us ends up creating a false god, an idol that is not presented in Scripture, a Jesus that is our own personal Jesus instead of the Jesus who really lived and walked and rose from the dead and reigns over us as King. Elders are called also to shepherd the flock of God, to care for the sheep, to equip others who are younger in their faith with an understanding of the Scriptures, both a head knowledge of what the Scriptures teach and also a life knowledge to apply those Scriptures in real-life situations, in all of life. The church is not something, religion is not something that is just for Sunday morning. We go and do and fill that need and then it has no application to the rest of life. Rather, God is involved with all of life. His word is useful for helping us engage all of life. To be equipped with truth and understanding in how our vocations are part of of God's kingdom work. How even cleaning the toilets is a part of God's building His kingdom here on earth. Elders are called to walk alongside of people in their difficult situations in life through pain and suffering, loss of a loved one, loss of Faith or confidence in God, suffering, personal injury or sickness, broken relationships, broken family. Elders are the ones who are called to come in and enter in and walk alongside of someone. It's significant that Paul says an elder should be a one uh, woman man or a husband of one wife because. Not in all circumstances, but in many, and I would even say most, husbands and wives are called to help people as a team when, they're, when the husband is called to the office of elder. To help teach other people, to mentor people, to uh, teach uh, other women. We, we'll come to that later in, the, in, in Paul's letter here of uh, the role of uh, wise, mature women in the faith using those gifts to teach other women in particular. I would just say as an aside, there is a role of teaching that is an authoritative teaching that God has called 
uh, pastors to undertake in particular, but there is a much broader role of teaching and understanding in the church that, uh, that involves women and that we need to look at a little bit more as we continue to go through the book, but it's, it's not really the place to, to look at that right now in this passage. It is an important question, even as our culture changes, to understand how God has gifted women and how theologically trained women can play and should play an important role in the church. And yet we're still muddling through right now how that role is, operates and what it looks like. I would say partly as a result of just some cultural influences that have impacted the church. And we have to understand what the Bible says and not just what our culture says and, and discern that. But with all those roles that an elder is called to do in shepherding others and guiding others and teaching others and guarding the doctrine of the church and even judging others, you can see why it's such an important task and why Paul gives this list of qualifications that we have to take seriously. And for the time remaining, it won't be long. I know I said last week that it wouldn't be long, and it was. But for the time remaining, I just want to look through this list of qualifications one by one, group a few of them, so that we can see how God values, what God values in a person that would qualify them to serve as an elder. Verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. If we said that the overseer, the elder, needs to be perfect, we would disqualify everyone except Jesus himself from office. To be above reproach means to rise to a certain level. And by the way, our elders are expected to maintain a certain level of being above reproach that is above that which is just expected of all Christians. It means that that person isn't going to be subject to prosecution or or at least found guilty of things like tax fraud, marital infidelity. Being a cheat, being selfish. Those things that most people in our culture, whether they're Christian or not, would say disqualify a person from any kind of position of authority. We live in an interesting time and place in which leaders are not always measured, however, by the content of their character, the quality of their character. They're measured oftentimes by the effectiveness or seemingly effectiveness of their task at hand. And so while I would suggest that in Paul's time, this term being above reproach actually would have appealed to the broader culture, I wonder some of the time in our culture today if we still have that same expectation of leaders as even the Greco-Roman culture had in its time. goes on to say that the leader, the elder, should be the husband of one wife. But many arguments made on this is not a simple phrase in the Greek to translate, but the best translation, I believe, is that this is a one 
woman, man. Again, by this time in history, when Paul's writing, the Greco-Roman society had by and large rejected polygamy. And so this was a culturally significant statement. It had broad appeal that this person would be faithful to his one wife. That this person would be committed to that relationship, not just bouncing from relationship to relationship. The question of divorce and remarriage, even of uh, a person losing their spouse, spouse to death, also comes up in this whole discussion. And I think the simplest and the best way to hear this in the, from the original Greek and from what I've read is to see that as that one woman man. An overarching faithfulness and commitment to that marriage. It doesn't mean that that person is the perfect husband, nor that the wife is the perfect wife. But that there is a commitment to that and they stay it out. The next three qualifications I want to group together. And that is that the first sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Again, we're staying with sort of these broader culturally respected characteristics. Not particularly Christian in and of themselves. Although increasingly so, some of these are. I think the best one to start with there is that they're sober-minded and self-controlled. They work together. Now, sober-minded doesn't just mean that they're not given to alcohol. If it meant just that, I don't think Paul would have repeated himself at the beginning of verse 3 when he says they should not be a drunkard. Sober-minded applies to broader areas of life than just alcohol or substance abuse. To be sober-minded means you don't just ride the highs and lows of life and change your opinion as the shifting sands are changed by a wave. Sober-minded, I was reminded of this from another time. Sober-minded reminded me of a story I heard of a woman whose father was an alcoholic. And she said there were times that her father was very loving very generous, but she was never quite sure if when her father came home at the end of the day, if she would get a bike or a beating. To be sober-minded is to have a sense of stability, an ability to judge a situation rightly. It corresponds with this being self-controlled, that we're not just moved and 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 and. and easily shifted that we can recognize when our emotions are high or low and set aside some of those things to make judgments rightly to identify in ourselves where we're prone to those things and confess them to God I would guess that in a congregation even our size that there are those who are prone to alcoholism. I've heard one story of, uh, uh, actually other stories as well, one story of, of a woman, uh, I think who was the, the wife of an elder who hid um, her alcoholism from everybody, including her husband, very effectively for years in the church. Other people have difficulty controlling uh, their, their, their themselves, being self-controlled and sober-minded. They're, they're prone to fits of anger and rage. And I want you to know that if you're in that position, 
that God doesn't turn His back on you. Nor say you're not fit to be in His church, but rather God calls you to Himself and offers Himself to you as not just salvation, but as strength to fight through the difficulties of those places. He draws near you, not saying get out until you get your life in order, but instead understanding the patience and long suffering it takes to love somebody in a situation like that. Some, perhaps some of you have relatives or even children who have been or in places where they're given to some of these things. And you know how difficult it is to continue to love them and know when to draw hard lines, when to speak hard truth, when to just welcome them back in. You know that some of the time those actions make you appear perhaps not above reproach, not respectable. In fact, one of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture is the story of the prodigal son who leaves, of course, and, and his older brother stays. And the story is a powerful story. We've, we've got a, a, a book that we give to visitors. If any of you haven't read it, read it before, it's, it's by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. But one of the most powerful scenes in that story is when the father, who is a dignified, wealthy man, sees his long-lost younger son at a distance and throws all dignity to the side and pulls up his garments and runs in probably a very awkward kind of run and, and, and not a very dignified kind of appearance, but runs to the son and throws his arms around him. And welcomes him back. As an example of what true eldership and shepherding looks like in the church of God. Jesus presents this prodigal father undignified father as an example of what it is to truly elder and shepherd people in his church. So if you have a notion that this overseer needs to always be in the suit and always be impeccable and always seem to have it together, I want to challenge that notion a little bit based on that story of the parable and also Jesus' own interaction with people who struggled with alcohol, who were tax cheats, who were sex addicts, who didn't know how to live apart from all these other things, who almost certainly took time to break old habits. And yet Jesus was not afraid to be seen with them and walk through them, those things with those people. But it doesn't mean that Jesus entered into that either. And so it goes on to say that it's not a, he's not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. All kind of outplays from what we looked at earlier. But now he's talking specifically about what's going on in Ephesus. And these qualities in particular in verse 3 are the very things that the false teachers are guilty of in that city. 
We don't know if they were necessarily drunkards, but Paul does tell Timothy, drink a little bit of wine to help your stomach, as if to say perhaps other people are drinking a lot of wine, and Timothy is, is maybe one to, to avoid all, all wine altogether in, in contrast or something. Maybe, maybe not, but at least you have these false teachers who are violent, he mentions earlier in his, li- in his list. They're given to quarrelsomeness. They are doing it for the money. And these are outward things that are readily apparent to all of us. And so as we, can, as we get ready to, to look at what, who are qualified to be elders, we should keep these qualities in mind as a church. And then he goes on to uh, verse 4, managing his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And this is a really significant qualification. It can be tricky some of the time. Because some kids just leave on their own. And just the fact that a kid has left the faith doesn't necessarily disqualify a father from being an elder. And yet at other times it does, but it does perhaps give a glimpse into what the family prioritizes. And can help be a part of the bigger picture of discerning a qualification for an elder. The role of elder is probably most helpful to see as parallel to the role of father. That the elder isn't just making all the decisions on his own, nor is a father and a husband making all the decisions on his own, but rather collectively gathers the wisdom of the church and applies it, but understands that he's on the hook for these decisions that are made. The father likewise isn't responsible for all the finances of the house necessarily, but he's on the hook. He's on the hook if the finances are squandered. He who is faithful with a little, Jesus says, is also going to be faithful with a lot. But he who is not faithful with a little, don't entrust to him a lot. To have a household and to manage it well. To see that the kids are learning and growing in their faith. To see that they're well prepared and tended to. Not just to see if they're submissive, but to see if their submissiveness is a response to the lovingness of the parents. You see, submissiveness in God's economy is never forced. Submissiveness is always a result of good leadership. In fact, God doesn't ask people to submit to faulty leaders without limits. And so if the elders of the church are teaching falsehood, it's the responsibility of the congregation to bring charges or to bring things against that, those elders, to raise the question, to shepherd them through these things, for other elders to come around them. Jesus says, honor the emperor, respect those in authority so long as you can. So long as it doesn't force you to do something 
that God doesn't want you to do. To deny God. To follow a different set of laws than what God has said. Submissiveness is a complementary response to the right use of authority. Now that doesn't mean you're always going to agree with those who are in authority. And in fact, Jesus challenges us and our elders are called to challenge us and we already talked about that. But when we see those in authority as ultimately caring for our well-being, then it changes our willingness to submit to them. To honor our parents. To honor the emperor. To submit to those elders in the church. And that is a vow that we take as members in the church. That we will submit to the elders of the church. Knowing that they have accountability and know that, that, that they, have op, they, they may fail as well. But knowing that they have agreed to be accountable to others and ultimately to sit under the authority of Jesus. One of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture is in Ezekiel 34 where God is calling those prophets and priests and kings, those officers that God had established in His church to account and saying, those people that I gave to shepherd have taken and stolen the sheep and devoured them. They have abused the role across the board almost. And he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to send another shepherd. And that is Jesus. I'm going to come myself and shepherd the people. And he is a shepherd that doesn't fail. And all of those elders in the church are called to this important role to lead, but all are under the authority of Jesus and His goodness and His leading. And it's a powerful thing that God promises us shepherding, and when humans fail, Jesus never fails. Sometimes we're tempted to put people into this position before they're ready. And I've seen it multiple times already in my few years in ministry. Whereas Paul warns, don't put a recent convert up there and don't push them into it too soon. They will fall into temptations of the devil and those temptations look different for different people. And some of the time it's abuse of power, some of the time it's false doctrine, some of the time it's something stealing money even, different things. Be careful about that. But don't wait too long. And I've got to tell you that as a church, I have waited too long. And part of this was things outside of my control with our previous organization. And part of this is just a fear of my, my own. And part of this is the readiness of the congregation. But I want to call those men in the congregation to step forward and pursue the offices of the church. The first one is the office of elder and overseer. The second one is the office of deacon, which we'll talk about next week. A deacon in some ways is a a secondary office that uh, many people who become elders start as deacons. But don't shy away from this responsibility because it's not just a responsibility that gives you a position of prominence or, or, or respect. Instead, it's a position that God has placed on the shoulders of the church not to do on its own, but under the authority of Jesus, 
to lead and guide the church. And if the church has no elders, if the church has no deacons, it always falters. It's an awesome responsibility. A significant one. A significant one that needs to be met. And I've asked some of you, and I'll continue to ask, do you want to be mentored toward this office? I'm willing to do some of it and help you to have find resources to do other things. Consider that. If I haven't approached you, consider talking to me about it. Approach me. It's essential for the vitality of the church. But know this, that if you don't step into the role, first, it may not be time. And that's fine. But second, Jesus will shepherd his church in various places and in various ways and raise up for himself leaders for the church. It's not a case of if you don't do it, no one will. It's a case of God has called you to do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Jesus gives us the strength to do things that we otherwise feel ill-equipped for. Trust him and follow him. See where it leads. Let's pray. Jesus, our good shepherd, will you lead us? Provide for us. When we're thirsty, give us water. When we're scared, remind us of your protection. When we're hungry, feed us. That we would know your shepherding and also that those who are called to shepherd others would know how to shepherd others. Equip us and make us men and women who fit this, these qualifications to serve as leaders in your church and provide for us elders in your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.